Super Talk Mississippi media production. Kickstart your adventure now with a new Gud Golf Cart from Country Carts of Brookhaven. Gud Golf Carts are assembled right here in Mississippi with the best features around. And best of all, they're street legal. Country Carts of Brookhaven, 401 Highway 51 South, phone 601-748-0454. What is up on a Monday? I am Brian Scott Riffey. My co-conspirator, as always, is Michael Borky. We appreciate you hanging out with us on this Monday, February, whatever it is, like 17th edition of the Rebel Report podcast. A lot to get to this week, or today, I should say. It was a busy weekend for Ole Miss. You had a hoops game that did not go Ole Miss's way in uh, Lexington, but they got pretty close to uh, doing exactly what we talked about on Friday's podcast and actually vaulting themselves back into the NCAA tournament, at least discussion, radar, whatever you want to call it, still would have had a long way to go, but they would have been on the radar with a win. That didn't happen. There was some late-game stuff that uh, you probably didn't really love if you were watching that game. We'll get into baseball. Obviously, I'm burying the lead here. They take two or three from Louisville in what was a pretty loud statement for the first weekend. I think probably the two best wins anyone has, although the uh, Vanderbilt did go uh, one and two this weekend, and Cal Poly got them, so... We'll get into all of that, some, maybe some baseball sign-stealing stuff because the world just continues to burn in Florida and Arizona. And it's Man, like continues Rob to Manfred over. is a joke, isn't he? My God. See, I, I don't know baseball anywhere close to the same atmosphere that you do, but from my 30,000-feet vantage point, that is the most incompetent leader in sports. Yeah, baseball suffered from bad leadership for a while. It was like Selig was the same thing. Like Selig had the steroid thing, and then he would just kind of pretend like nothing's wrong. It was really, which is kind of what Rob Manfred's doing right now. But I have some thoughts on that. Maybe we'll get to that at the end if we have time. First and foremost, let's get down to business. We'll go. Let's go baseball first. I'm sure that's what most people want to talk about in turn. Yeah, uh, yeah just because <laughs> hoops was uh, close, but not close enough for Ole Miss. Uh, but baseball takes a series from Louisville. They back ended it. They lost a frustrating game on Friday night. Reed Detmers was really good for Louisville. Missed couldn't really handle the fastball, and then he throws that big looping breaking ball, and you're really just kind of off balance all night if you can't handle the former. But they lose seven to two. They come back and they win the Saturday game behind Kale Baker's two home runs, which I think the world kind of got introduced to. Uh, Kale Baker, as we told you, kind of has the Kenny Powers whiskey meat vibe. He hits two home runs. Ole Miss wins that game 8-6. to six. They survive a ninth inning that could have gotten hairy. And kind of the same thing yesterday. They uh, they win 7-6, to six and they survive another ninth inning that, that could have gone uh, pretty sideways. Still some probably some questions about the bullpen. But overall, I thought it was a pretty good weekend. I thought it was impressive that a – really, it was a bunch of the, – the, Returning guys obviously contributed. So video had a monster weekend. We can get into that too. I don't really know where to start, but I just I guess one general macro thought. I thought it was fairly impressive with the way they kind of got stifled by Detmers on Friday night. A bunch of guys that hadn't really been in that position before, hadn't been in the lineup, uh, turned around and really didn't let it deter them. And you know they oust, they hit uh, Bobby Miller who throws upper nineties with a slider that sits at like 88 pretty well. And then did the same thing against a hell of a Sunday arm. I, I was impressed that they didn't let that frustrate them and they responded pretty well to it, man. 15 run. If I'd have told you that they were scoring 15 runs on Saturday and Sunday combined, you'd have taken, I mean, Mike Bianco and everybody would have taken that running. Wouldn't they have? Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely the case. I mean, I, I was surprised at the, offensive production i thought friday went about like i thought it did i thought they would struggle to score and then 
I like they I made said, him work a little bit, though. I mean, I know that they didn't do much against Detmers, but, I mean, he had to work. Well, he was up – when he was taken out of the game after five, he was up in the 90s pitch count, wasn't he? Yeah, he was, and they 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 got guys on base. I think they left seven runners on base all night. They were just they were uh, not great situationally, mm-hmm. and uh, you know when he needed to make an out pitch, he did, and he's he's really good. I mean, he's probably the best left hander in the country. It was interesting. His fastball was actually not at the velocity as kind of advertised. He really sat right around ninety, but uh, he tunnels that thing pretty well. A pitching ninja, if you're kind of a baseball nerd, is a pretty cool account to follow. Uh, he kind of tracks the way guys pitch and how they hide pitches and tunnel pitches and all that. And coming out of his hand, the that big looping curveball that starts about at your eye level and then drops off the table looks a lot different with the fastball. I, I excuse me, looks a lot similar to the fastball coming out of his hand. Really difficult to read, and I think that's probably where he made his hay because Ole Miss uh, was not very good against it. To his credit, he kept it down in the zone for the most part. I thought he was really good. I thought Ole Miss probably could have had a couple better at bats, but overall, I mean, that just kind of is what it is on Friday. I didn't think. Yeah, I got a text on Friday. It was like, man, why can't this team hit? Like, well, it's probably because the pitcher's pretty good too, man. (laughs) Yeah, you're not going to hit guys like that that often. Nobody is. Yeah, that kid will probably have seven figures in his bank account come June, so he's uh, he he's going to be just fine. Uh, I thought Nikhazy was okay. I think what he finished it. What, I think he went five and a third, four earned runs, five strikeouts, three walks. Oh, he had kind of the 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 slip up at the beginning of the. Uh, excuse me, he had a slip up in the fifth, or excuse me, beginning of the sixth. Gets ousted. You know, made a couple of mistakes there. Aside from that, I thought he was okay. It wasn't great, but I mean, first start of the year. But uh, he was through five innings. I Some people complaining that he was able to start the sixth inning. I didn't quite understand that. I get being on a pitch count early in the year, but, I mean, he was, he was you know, spinning a one-hitter through five innings. It was at 73 pitches. I, I didn't really have a problem with Because, uh, Rippy, people will complain about a Mike Bianco decision no matter what the decision is. It does not matter. what Sometimes, and I understand that, you know, 20 years and people, things kind of get stale or whatever. But um, the only reason that you're mad that he ran Nikhazy out there in the sixth is because he got hit, not because of the decision to run him out there because of the outcome. And you can't react as a sports fan to that. If the decision was the right one, then you have to accept the result. It was the right decision. It just didn't work out. But because, it's Mike Bianco, and he made that decision. He's a bum. He sucks. He never handles pitchers well. And then Saturday, he pulls Hoagland early. And I did see some people like, wow, he still hasn't learned. It's like he did the exact opposite thing he did Friday. Yeah, you, you just don't like him. And you look stupid. But anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, I maybe he, he possibly left him in a batter too long. I mean, he gives up the two singles back-to-back uh, back towards the top of their order. And then he did get a fly out wild pitch, whatever, and then the back-to-back doubles is really what kind of did him in. Zach Britton hit one uh, that scored two, and then uh, Henry Davis, I think is the kid's name, uh, yanked one down the left field line that scored Britton, and that's three runs, and then that's kind of uh, not your ball game, but Ole Miss had just taken a one nothing lead. Louisville gets it right back, and it felt like they really see him. And maybe leaves him a batter too too long. I had no problem with him starting the inning. And then uh, if you actually want to get on Mike for something, I thought leaving they they left Taylor Broadway in kind of as the game ballooned uh, kind of out of reach. They left Taylor Broadway in for 57 pitches and burned him for the rest of the weekend. I didn't quite understand that one. He goes three and a third, 
think he ended up allowing like three runs, which I don't think any of them were earned because they did almost made four one errors Friday. Uh, they wouldn't pretty sure. Oh, so one earned and you know, 57 pitches, 56 pitches, whatever it was. I thought that was interesting. I feel like you could have just brought in the Savelle kid and just kind of punted on the weekend and saved Broadway or punted on the night and saved Broadway for the rest of the weekend. But whatever. I thought that was the only really critiquable pitching decision. So, you know, really weren't. I saw the Anthony Servideo, who I think had two of the team's six hits on Friday. Not much to, uh, to sniff at at the plate for Ole Miss. But again, as you get to Saturday, they responded. Kale Baker gets them going early with a home run, and then he hits another one late in the game. And he really kind of powered Ole Miss that win. He drove in four runs. He was four for four with a double. Uh, you know, he's he's kind of a uh, – I've never heard Mike Bianco describe a pitcher as a uh, – excuse me, a, a player as a joy, but uh, I think that's just kind of the vibe Kale Baker gets off. Always in a good mood, always seems to be smiling, and he, as long as he hits the ball over the fence, he will remain in the lineup. But I thought Ole Miss played pretty well in this one. They got off. I thought it was important they got to Miller early. I thought it was important that they got off to a good start because you know they got frustrated by a really good pitch from Friday. That kid comes in throwing upper nineties, and them getting off to the fast start. You had Chatenay go down the line, scored a Servideo. A Servideo walked or got hit by a pitch. I forget to lead off the inning, and then Chatenay doubles down the left field line. Uh, then you kind of get Keenan productive ground ball and then Kale Baker kind of puts the exclamation point on it with a solo shot to left center. And he got every bit of that ball. Wind was blowing out a little bit, but he uh, he pissed on that one. So you get three in the first. I thought that was important. And then I thought Hoagland was pretty good in his own right. Uh, you know, made a couple of mistakes throughout the middle part of the game, but I thought he was pretty good. And then the one thing Ole Miss failed to do until Sunday was kind of get a shutdown inning. Like, I think every single time they scored a run through the first two games, uh, Louisville answered with one right afterward. I, I think they- So here's how it went Saturday. So Ole Miss scored bottom five, Louisville scored one top six. Ole Miss scored one bottom six, Louisville scored one top seven, and then Ole Miss went for three bottom seven, and then that ended the game, basically. Yeah, and I think the similar thing happened after Ole Miss scored three in the first, Louisville got one in the second. I think they did. Like a, That's exactly right. One to- Another one in the fourth or something like that. The middle of that lineup, Britton and Henry Davis really kind of uh, killed Ole Miss. Cause I think that fourth inning, he had a one-out triple and then scored on a double. Those two dudes back-to-back were pretty lethal. I don't know how many hits off the top of my head those two had. On Saturday, they had four combined. On Sunday, they had uh, they weren't behind each other on Sunday. That, uh, as good as their pitching stuff is, Louisville's lineup is pretty good, and they were down a position player. But you know, aside from that, I, I thought they were pretty, pretty damn impressive. But anyway, so you mean the seven, it's the number one team in the country for a reason? Yeah, I think they're going to be just fine when they get fully healthy. That pitching staff is pretty nasty. You know, this series really could have gone either way. That seventh, four run seventh swung the game yesterday, but they're uh, pretty good. But the Saturday game, obviously, the story was Kale Baker. He hits two over the fence. Uh, that four runs uh, or three runs seventh inning kind of swings the game. I. Uh, you know, they there were some good things in this one. I thought, I thought Hoagland was all right. I, I think they're probably going to have to pitch a little better. Like they're with the amount of top level arms in this league, they're probably going to need to be a little better than that on Saturday. But again, he's facing one of the better lineups he's going to face all year. But I thought the most encouraging sign was that when the middle, when Ole Miss needed a kind of a big inning to swing a game, the middle of the order seemed to deliver every time because the seventh. You had Keenan single up the middle, and then Baker puts the second one out of the ballpark. And then Elko, I think, gets on a fielder's choice or something like that. But point being, 
the middle of the lineup was really tough for Louisville's pitchers to get through, and that's really where Ole Miss was re- replacing most of its production. I think they were replacing 70% of the hits uh, off of last year's team, and that was I'm, I think that was probably the most encouraging sign of your Ole Miss throughout the course of the weekend is the middle of their lineup was really good, and that's, uh, that's where they had a lot of holes. Kel Baker was good. Uh, Keenan was pretty good, and then uh, Servideo was just kind of a nightmare at the top in terms of opposing uh, defenses. If he hits, he has some serious draft potential because the range uh, at shortstop is pretty similar to Kessinger, and if he continues to hit like that, he is going to make himself a lot of money this year. But uh, Boy, take he away pimped from- that home run too on Sunday. Oh my God! <laughs> uh, I really, I didn't. I mean, I saw it go if it over was the, the fence. Majors he'd gotten thrown at. My God, he just stood on the plate and admired it. I mean, it went over the student section. At least it looked like it on TV. Uh, I mean, just a tank bomb. But he stood there next to the plate and just kind of watched it go <laughs> for like 15 seconds. Yeah, just a, I guess if you want another macro thought on everything, this team kind of has a little like fu to it. Like they are not. Uh, it you know it's three games into the season. I'm not making any sweeping judgments over here, but like like Chatagnier kind of like at the they strike him out, throw him out to end the game on Sunday. He looks back and I I couldn't tell if he was talking. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. I couldn't tell if he was talking to sir video or if he was talking to the runner but like he kind of gets like yells something spikes the ball like uh it looked like trophy was kind of chirping the uh, batter a little bit after that like they uh this team kind of has a little bit of a chip on its shoulder and i think that's a good thing uh but yeah <laughs> uh sir video pimping the home run what have you but yeah this team kind of has i mean they're they're certainly not lacking for confidence i mean Derek diamond was talking as if he they this is kind of the expected result so I, I, if you're looking for a good sign there, I think that's certainly a, a positive for this group. So uh, the question is is sustainability, right? Because as I said, and I think you agreed last week that this series is going to matter more for fans than it actually matters on the field. And so, uh, in the effort of consistency, I mean, nothing nothing happens in February in college baseball like, at all. Like, it's good that they got a series win over Louisville, but. If they'd have lost all three games or if they'd have won all three games, it, it doesn't really mean anything for them moving forward. It's a really good baseball team, and it's one of those sports where a ball can bounce your way or not your way and be the complete difference in a series like this. My question, and I think the question, is did you see enough that makes you think that they actually can be competitive against teams like Louisville, and they've got a few coming up on the schedule every single weekend or is it still just, as I said, just too early? It's February. It's hard to tell. But did you see anything that makes you think that, hey, this team is maybe better than the people projected them to be, and they can be high-level competitive every weekend? Was this a flash in the pan, or was this who this team is going to be? Well, I mean, like you kind of said, you're three games into the season, but if you're looking for, a, I guess, a telltale sign, the way they, they performed at the plate and the way the newcomers uh, handled handled themselves at the plate, whether it's shot and yay had a pretty productive weekend. Ben, Ben Van Cleve, these, they have some hard names to say on this team and Kale Baker and some of the guys that hadn't been there before the way they hit and the way they handled themselves at the plate, I think is as good an indication as any that this maybe probably is sustainable and they're going to be pretty good. You know, I, I, it's hard, again, like I said, like you were saying, it's really hard to make any sort of judgment off of three games, but this was just kind of a statement weekend for this team. And I, I think, I, I came away with this thinking, man, that lineup has a chance to be better than I thought. 
so yes, I do think they're going to be pretty good. I, uh, I if you if you want to go all hot takeish, I'll uh, I'll sort of kind of uh, dance out on a limb. I don't think they're going to finish sixth in the West. How about that? Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I mean, especially with a guy like Kale Baker, I know that the JUCO transition is difficult for some people, but the dude hit 500 last year. Yeah, and he's. I mean, he's been. He was a. He was a D one bounce back. He was at Cincinnati for a year, and then goes to whatever community college in Ohio. And yeah, the transition was good. He had a terrible fall. Uh, really struggled. Really pressed, but then really made a push to get back, kind of in the lineup mix with the way he performed in the scrimmages leading up to uh, leading up to the year in in winter ball or spring ball, whatever the hell they call that now. The three weeks leading up to this to the season and. Uh, I think really just kind of relaxed, and uh, you hear such a buzzword here and them talk about simplifying their approach, but I think his head was probably clouded. He was probably worried because those JUCO guys, uh, there's a sense of urgency there because, you know, if you struggle as a freshman, whatever, you get redshirted, you know, you, you've got time, I guess. Like I'm thinking Connor Walsh, the kid that's fast in the outfield that really hasn't translated well so far. He's got time. Those JUCO guys don't have the benefit of it. So I imagine just putting myself in – in a guy like Kale Baker's shoes, when you struggle in the fall, I imagine you start really pressing because you aren't, you know, you, you don't have the luxury of that amount of time. Like you're kind of expected to perform now and really kind of turned it around. So good on him. But yeah, as, as far as like just the macro thought, I think the the lineup be, appearing that it has a chance to be as strong as it is and there not being a ton of drop off from last year's team, I think that would be the biggest indicator of anything that this team could potentially exceed expectations and be better. Uh, if you want to go question mark wise, and we're kind of bouncing around here, but I think that's fine. Probably a little more needed from the bullpen. Uh, Wes Burton in the Sunday game, I thought was really good. The big six, eight kid retired the first seven batters he faced. And in a weekend where, as I mentioned earlier, you kind of struggled to get the shutdown inning after Ole Miss scored or Ole Miss grabbed some momentum, whatever, uh, you know, he re- he puts up a score with seventh and eighth, which are the two most important zeros of the weekend, and really kind of changed the course of that game because it was kind of a back and forth seesaw battle there as they each kind of chipped away at a run, you know, trading runs, whatever, trading blows, and then he comes in and really kind of stifles it. Uh, talking to himself, I was pointed out. Uh, I, I couldn't tell, like obviously, <laughs> pretty, where I was sitting man, on the television. <laughs> yeah, he he really he, gets after himself. Yeah, it's kind of like Max Scherzer-esque, or if you want to go to the college route, Zach Hess. I remember, I think TCU had a kid, too, that did it a couple years ago. Zach Hess, the kind of psycho dude from LSU, did it as well. We asked Wes Burton about it after the game, and his response was, it's a dark place we have to go through sometimes. And then he just laughed. So I don't necessarily know what that means, but (laughs) whatever works for you, man. Uh, uh, Must be nice being 6'8". But anyway, I thought he was pretty good. But outside of that, they were a little shaky. Trophy didn't really uh, throw. Trophy was okay, but I, he has trouble throwing strikes. And I think you saw that towards the end of the game. The strike him out, throw him out, uh, really kind of bailed them out a little bit. And they got bailed out on Saturday because Forsyth came into the game. Well, let's, oh, here, let, we'll, we'll take a break real quick and tell you the podcast brought to you by LLBs. But I've got, uh, I've got a couple thoughts on the ending of the two games uh, that kind of ties in with the bullpen thing. But first, I'll remind you, you go to LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. There were LB's advertisements everywhere throughout the weekend, uh, fresh meat pitching change. Uh, I, I wanted to ask Greg, the little infomercial on the video board when they're advertising for LB's, I wonder if that's Greg's hands uh, grabbing the meat. I have to ask him about that. But anyway, go see him, University Avenue across from Kroger. Uh, he feeds the baseball team. He can feed you while you watch the baseball team. He's got Swayze game packs, steaks, custom cuts, 
all kinds of sausages. If you're headed to the ballpark this year, swing by uh, LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Before you go, you won't regret it, and you'll eat some really dank meat as you watch the baseball team. Anyway, kind of tying into my bullpen thought, the ending of the two games were kind of hairy, right? I mean, they allowed, was it 8-4 or 8-5 going into the ninth on uh, Tuesday, on Saturday? I think it was 8-5. Saturday was 8-5 going into the ninth, and Sunday it was 7-4 going into the ninth. Yeah, so this team doesn't necessarily have a closer yet. I thought it was going to be Austin Miller, but he pitched uh, middle relief on Saturday. And honestly, uh, he and Burton had the two most dominant middle relief performances uh, Why on the is team. he a middle reliever? Uh, it's probably just out of necessity. I don't think Mike knows who his closer is yet. Uh, I think them burning Broadway on Friday kind of threw them off a little bit. And honestly, when when Miller came into the game in relief of Holston, I think it was only two thirds of an inning. Like that, I mean, you it, I mean, setting up anything else, be damned. You kind of need to go to your best gun at that point. I, I think is what happened because Ole Miss was kind of trading blows. You know. Uh, Almost never trailed in that Saturday game, but when Miller comes into the game, like Louisville was threatening, I think what it was five four five five something like that, and like you, you just needed a guy to stabilize thing, and I, I don't think there's anyone in uh, in that bullpen that he trusts more than Austin Miller, and so you know Ole Miss scores a run in the six to get the lead back at five four or what at the in the bottom of the six i think you're looking and you're going to miller after holston's labors a little bit and you're thinking one you need to get these guys off the bases because miller i mean holston allowed what two singles and got an out before on a sack bunt before miller so one he needed a guy that was going to swing and miss and two he needed his best gun to get him out of out out of that jam so i think it was more out of necessity than setup or anything but anyway they get to the ninth inning and Forsyth comes in and what he gets the first out and then he allowed a solo shot or no, that was Miller. Miller got the first out. Oriente takes him deep to left and then they go to Forsyth. Forsyth allows a walk wild pitch dudes on second. And then he falls behind three, nothing to the catcher, Henry Davis, who really bailed him out. Three uh, O pitch. He swings out up in the zone and pops it up in foul territory. I have no idea why that dude was swinging at that pitch. Uh, Forsyth was really struggling to get the ball in the strike zone and they got bailed out there. And to his credit, they took advantage of it by striking out Ben Bianco, who, uh, who had a chance to tie, uh, had a chance to tie that thing up or uh, excuse me, uh, win the game with one swing of the bat or take the lead, but tie it up. If he could deliver with the base hit or one in the gap and they struck him out on a three, two fastball, if I'm not mistaking. So they get out of it and kind of the same thing happened Sunday. Trophy struggled to throw strikes. You know, they allowed the two runs, uh, but escape on the strike him out, throw him out double play, which as much as Hayden Dunhurst struggled at the plate, he was really, really good uh, throwing the ball wise. The receiving defense probably a little bit uh, left to be desired. But uh, well, he also a- kind of cost them a run on Sunday to open the game. Yeah, I thought that was more so. Uh, I thought that was more Servideo's fault because I don't know why you're running the dude towards home. Literally, the only direction a runner can hurt you in that situation is him running towards home plate. So yeah, the dude should have caught the tag. But the throw was not very good, and I didn't understand waiting to throw that. That was yeah, just get it to him. Yeah, I mean that's the only the only way you can get hurt in that situation is the dude running towards home plate. So that that didn't make any sense. How much do you think they practice that kind of scenario today? Ah, probably probably a decent bit. But I just I don't uh, I I I don't understand what they were doing there. But I had to have that game on the radio for a little while. We did a a flood coverage uh, after after my Sunday show up here. And uh, so, so I was still live on the air until noon. 
because the flood down here is bad, man. It's uh, and it's it's only going to get worse uh, throughout today. So I had to get in the be in the car on the way home and listen to the game at first before I could watch it yesterday. And you should have heard David Kel- the disappointment of David Kellum's voice when he dropped that baseball. <laughs> I mean, he like after um after it was caught, you heard him get excited. He's like, "Oh, there's two men on third. And then there was silence for a little while, and he's and he dropped the ball. <laughs> like, yeah, you didn't even really know what's going on. You just knew that somebody dropped the ball and run scored because there's just silence after there's two guys on third and then nothing, and then oh, he dropped the ball. <laughs> yeah, that seems to happen in college baseball a lot. Ole Miss had a couple of those last year. Just the the rundown stuff is uh, uh, was was not great, but. So anyway, you get to those ninth innings, and, and you had guys kind of come in and struggle to throw strikes. And I think if there's one one area that you're pro- Mike Bianco's probably not resting easy on is the bullpen was okay in spots, but you know Forsyth comes in, struggled to throw strikes. I probably should have gone with him to start the inning instead of uh, leaving Miller in for one more batter or two more batters, whatever it was, whatever. And then Trophy struggling to throw strikes. They really kind of got bailed out a little bit in the ninth inning because – and some of this is a credit to Dunhurst. Louisville's a team that usually runs a decent bit, and they didn't on that uh, on the weekend. I think they either saw in the first game or knew or heard about Dunhurst's arm, and I think that played a large factor in it. But you know, things were getting hairy in that ninth inning again on Sunday before the strike him out, throw him out uh, that ended the game. So you know, if one area, if there's left to be desired, one area they're probably looking to think, oh, that's probably not short up yet. It probably is the bullpen. I think they need to find. I mean, I guess you could close by committee, but I think they need to find over the next month one or two dudes they trust to get outs in the eighth and ninth inning and then try to kind of work your way through the front end uh, based off of that. So, I don't know. Two pretty uh, pretty exciting, I guess, ninth innings, but Ole Miss would have rather have those things be fairly drama-free. But, you know, it's uh, Mike Bianco I don't think knows how to manage his bullpen yet. I wouldn't really expect him to after the first weekend. But... Uh, you know, I, I wonder how often Trophy and Braden Forsyth will be pitching the ninth inning as 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 we get into the month of March and kind of deeper into the season. That's uh, I guess my kind of final thought on the bullpen there. But and they've got a good. Uh, okay, I'm projecting here. You would know more than me, but Xavier wouldn't strike me as a, a high level college baseball program. So they have a weekend before they go off um, and see ECU in Indiana to to kind of figure that out, right? With with Xavier? Yeah, definitely. I mean, even through those, I mean, it's, it's tough as their schedule is even going to the, to ECU and that tournament and all that, they can still like that. Those will be kind of important proving grounds to figure that stuff out too. Like, I mean, if you want to figure it out before you get into SEC play, what are they open with LSU? I think maybe um, they open with LSU at home. That series will be nuts. Then they go to Texas A&M. Yeah, so I mean, you, you kind of want to have your ducks in the row in terms of knowing what your bullpen is, what you have, and how you want to get through a game, at least on a Friday night, uh, before you get to SEC play, because obviously based off the Friday game kind of determines what you do the rest of the weekend bullpen-wise. But yeah, I mean, they've got a month or so to figure that stuff out, and they were terrible back there. They just had a couple guys struggle to throw strikes late. I think they do have something in Wes Burton. I think Miller was as good as advertised. Burton's I do think a huge kid too. I, I I don't have the roster up in front of me, just the box scores. What is he like? Six foot seven? Yeah, he's about six eight. He's a big dude and uh, threw pretty hard. I thought he was. Uh, I thought he was really good. I thought you know he and like I said, he and Miller were kind of the two most dominant bullpen outings of the weekend, unless I'm uh, mistaking somebody. But yeah, I, I I thought he was really good. And 
you know, I, I think they knew what they had in Miller. I think they're going to miss Tyler Myers because, you know, there was a situation on Sunday where they kind of needed a guy to come in and stabilize him in long relief. And to, to be fair, it turned out to be Burton, but like that, that was a situation they really could have used Tyler Myers or Broadway or someone like that. But right-handed heavy bullpen, you know, I think there's some talent back there. I think some arms, they just, I think they need to figure out kind of what's what. And there's still some guys that haven't pitched yet that I think they're going to end up contributing. The left-hander, Jackson Kimbrell, uh, I think Burton has a chance. I'm not convinced Burton won't start a couple of midweek games. I think Drew McDaniel will as well. They're starting Greer Holston on Tuesday, and I would bet McDaniel on Wednesday against Alcorn. I think they go Arkansas State Tuesday, Alcorn Wednesday. But anyway, the point being, there's still a lot left to be settled. But overall, pretty good showing on opening weekend, I thought. I thought they did a lot of things well at the plate. I thought they pitched it just well enough. I thought Derek Diamond looked the part on Sunday. He made a couple of mistakes in the middle part of the uh, – or in the fifth inning, gives up the back-to-back home runs. I think he left like a cutter and a fastball up. And to their credit, Ben Bianco and uh, Levi Usher, I think the kid's name, punished him. But uh, if that's what you're going to get every Sunday, uh, I think that's about all you can ask for. I, I thought he was really good. I thought he was pretty composed. Uh, so I thought he looked the part. I would like to see Hoagland be a little bit better if I were Mike Bianco. But aside from that, pitching was uh, – Pitching was okay against a pretty good lineup. And then, you know, they really won this thing with the way the newcomers in the middle of the order handled it, handled things at the plate, because you had two seventh innings that really turned the course of each game. And that's about all you can ask for is those guys delivering in big spots like that. So good. And the legend of Kale Baker's born, by the way, I remember a couple weeks ago, I asked you about a pitcher. I saw I I guess it was of him. And then who was it? Van Cleave. Who's the other big chunker. Uh, um, yes, Van Cleve. Yeah, I saw those two guys standing on first base, and I asked you who they were, and just off the top of your head, you know, just didn't hit you. It was in passing. But, yeah, those two dudes are, like, they take beefcake to another level. Like, Sykes Orvis never looked like Kale Baker. Yeah, I mean, they do have some, uh, they they do have a couple of dudes on this team that, like, they're very interesting. Uh, they're likable. That's the thing about Kale Baker, man. It's just the look automatically makes people like him. He looks like Kenny Powers, but Kenny Powers like 10 years after retirement where he's done nothing but eat for the the entire time. You know, like he's just beefy and he's got the hair and, and the, the facial hair that's terrible, but it's awesome at the same time. That kid, like it, he's an electric factory. That's all he is. It, every time he steps up the plate now, like people, there, there's going to be like an Aaron Judge type aura around him. Not because he's as good as Aaron Judge. We've only seen him for three games, but he's like got that kind of draw to him because you want to see this six foot, two hundred and sixty pound dude with a mullet hit tank bombs. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I, and he, if he only hits a little bit, obviously he's going to be one of the most, if not the most, popular player on the team. Uh, he's already self- there. It's I mean it's over. There's there's no way anybody can get more popular than him. It's done. Yeah, and he's self-aware. Like I mean, they asked him if he knew about the Kenny Power stuff, and he was like, "Oh yeah, hell yeah, I'm a big Eastbound and Down fan. I don't know if I'll live up to that legacy, but uh, said he said he give it his best shot." I think we did this at the beginning of baseball season last year. I can't remember that. It's basically stealing from the radio show kind of your winners from the weekend in terms of them. And I'll probably go Baker on this one. I think, what, he had six, five, six hit weekend, drove in five or six runs. I think he and Servideo were your two winners at the plate. Keenan was okay. Uh, Chatonier would probably be uh, in this conversation too. He was really good this weekend. And then I think your winners on the mound would certainly be 
I'll give it to Diamond because it was his, I mean, what, he'll, he can be in this category too because he uh, I thought he looked the part. I thought he handled himself pretty well. Gives them a quality-ish outing the first time out. And then, of course, Burton and Austin Miller out of the bullpen were their two biggest weapons this year. Burton puts up the two biggest zeros of the weekend. So uh, that's kind of who I thought was the two, three best guys on uh, on each side this weekend in terms of on the mound and at the plate. Is there anyone else that I'm missing? Um, I don't think so. Um, impressed with that lineup, though, as you've mentioned a few times. Uh, it just did not expect them to hit like this uh, this early. Knew it was a young team. I mean, the, the talking point going into the season was, you know, they should be able to pitch it well enough to give the bat some time to figure it out before the, the season starts getting serious. And, and kind of the opposite happened this weekend against, the, I mean, uh, a team that most pundits think is going to go to Omaha again. So, um, just all around really good, positive weekend. And, um, you know, that's that's about it. So, they're back at it Tuesday against Arkansas State. I think that game's at 4 o'clock. Greer Holston will pitch for Ole Miss in that one. I'm going to bet Drew McDaniel starts the other game Wednesday, but I guess that kind of remains to be seen. Uh, elsewhere, Ole Miss did play a fairly important basketball game on Saturday. And uh, you might have to take the lead on this a little bit because I was watching this game. They had it on the TV in the baseball press box. And I was doing my best to kind of balance it back and forth. And I wasn't really 100% locked into the basketball game until I would say about the last six, seven minutes of the game. But I thought Ole Miss played really well. I thought, you know, it helped that Kentucky was, what, like two of 22 from three-point range. Like they were kind of... Uh, 9%, 9.1 yeah. to be exact from three. They were they were really really bad in that department, but but it does help that I mean, it, it, look Kentucky didn't shoot well and they missed some open looks, but Ole Miss defended them well. Yeah, they did. I, I thought they're uh, I thought I thought they handled themselves okay on the interior as well, at least from what I saw. I think Hadim C continues to improve, but he, his fifth foul was bogus. I know. It, people were very upset at the officiating. I I understand why. I mean, even Kermit in the post game uh, with with um, with Kellum and is it Mark Dukes? I can't remember. Uh, but in the post game with Kellum, it talked about the foul discrepancy in the first half and how that was more of a killer than anything in the second half. Is that Kentucky? I mean, they, they were in. I think they had their first foul with just over eight minutes to go in the first half. And they were already shooting bonus free throws by then. Um, so I understand pe- why people were upset at the officiating. And Hadim C's fifth foul uh, exemplifies why it was so bad, because that just simply wasn't. It wasn't at all. Uh, it was a complete flop, and they kicked him out of the game for it. But as I'm sure you were planning on getting to, and we'll get to, when you have a one-point lead with a minute 20 left and your best scorer on the free throw line, um you should have executed better. Yeah, so, yeah, and I just kind of macro thoughts looking at the stat sheet. You know, you, you get 13 points from K.J. Buff and you get 13 from Blake Henson. That's another productive game for Blake Henson. That's a couple in a row now. And, uh, you know, that, he had that's a couple kind of, like, of big threes in the second half, too. Like, the, the, like, good timing threes, not early in the game and then fizzled out. Like, his best minutes were in the second half. 
Yeah, I thought so as well. And then Buffin, you know, that's kind of the line you thought you would get from each of them going into the season kind of on a nightly basis. And to their credit, they're kind of starting to come around. I thought Buffin played really well. He rebounded well. He made big shots. Uh, I thought he got creative offensively. He seems to be kind of growing up a little bit and taking a step forward. Uh, And it's amazing what happens when you can stay on the court and not foul. (laughs) But really the story of this game was the last, what, five, six minutes or so, Ole Miss just really didn't execute very well. Bree and Tyree missed uh, the front end of two huge free throws. One of them, what, they were up, they were down one with like a minute left and he missed it. And then the other one. They were uh, up towards, one with over a minute yeah, left. Yeah, that's right. Up one and then they, then he missed it. And then, of course, the the uh, I called it the final possession. It wasn't technically the final possession, but it was the last time they were able to get a shot up because Kentucky fouled once they got up three. Uh Shoot, you know, Kermit called timeout. Looked like it had a decent draw where Tyree was supposed to get the ball back. And then Shewer shot fakes from just off to the top of the key to the right. The guy kind of halfway jumps up. It was honestly pretty good body control. I don't remember if that was Hagens or Maxi, or maybe it was quickly. One of the three Kentucky guards, whoever the hell it was, kind of halfway jumps up. Shewer tries to get into him and draw contact. I get what he's trying to do. Probably not the smartest play in that situation. But again, if the guy fully leaves his feet and the foul is called, uh, Schuler kind of looks like a genius. So I, I get what he was trying to do, but not. I mean, when 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 the no, they were it, down one. I'm sorry, I got to correct myself. They were down one when he missed that free throw. That's what I thought. I thought they were down 63-62. But anyway, on that final possession, like I I get what the, he was kind of trying to do, but it's not a smart play. Like it, it's the biggest possession in the game. You want to get the best look you can possibly get and trying to draw a foul when you don't really have like another possession or a mulligan to lean back on in terms of like time and clock situation. That's just not really what you want to do there. And uh, uh, Kermit Davis, I didn't hear what he said after the game, but he looked uh, looked pretty pretty pissed off about that whole thing. Kids trying to make a play, I get it, but just not the time or place to do that. You want Brian Tyree to get that last shot, and the fact that he didn't uh, probably leaves a pretty sour taste in their mouth. But, yeah, execution, free throw shooting down the stretch was just uh, was not good. And then, of course, after Kentucky goes up three after that, and they foul on this to prevent them from shooting a three-point shot, and Tyree missed, those, missed the front end of those free throws that uh, didn't really give them a chance. So, you know, they're going to be kicking themselves for the final, what, 90-ish seconds of this game. They had a shot. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, they played Kentucky, took them down the wire in rough, which, as you alluded to, for a number of reasons, is not an easy place to win. Overall, I thought they played pretty well, but, you know, almost isn't isn't really good enough for this team at this point. Thought they no, not well after that start at all. But it does tell you, and this isn't a fluke either, because going into this, they blew out Florida and blew out South Carolina and blew out Mississippi State. So there are times in basketball where a bad team will go to a place like Kentucky and you know compete for a while, and it's cute, but really they didn't. They just played out of their minds. I don't think Ole Miss played out of their minds. I think they just played. Uh, to their capability it, it, with the lack of execution, especially late, but they traded blows with Kentucky in Rupp, and that's who they are now. So moral victories and stuff, I know there's no such thing, but we're not on the team, so it doesn't matter what we think. It's too late for them. I mean, they needed this win and to basically play perfect basketball to get back into the conversation, but it does show you how much better they've gotten over the last few weeks because that was no fluke. That wasn't one of those bad team just playing out of their minds and making a ton of shots their their shooting line was 40 35 and 72 like they didn't shoot that well either so that's just where they are right now is they are 
playing significantly better basketball and going to Rupp and trading blows with Kentucky down the stretch was no fluke. That's just how good they are right now. They're much yeah, I better. Think, I think that I think that this is just kind of like this was the team you thought you were going to have in December and early January. Like if this was the team that they had, like if this is how they were playing and this was like the level they were playing at from the start of SEC play, they'd be what they're four and eight. I wouldn't be. I mean, I don't think it's crazy to say they'd be seven and five. I mean, they'd be I, I, easily in the tournament if they were playing like this all season. Yeah, and that's what we keep going back to. I mean, it's beating a dead horse, but it's also the truth. Like that—that's kind of what this is going to end up amounting to. They're going to look back at the end of the end of, or I should say, the end, the beginning of January. At the end of this year, they're going to look back at the beginning of January in those first three weeks, in particular, and just kind of wonder what could have been because that—that that, the stretch not closing out the games against Arkansas and LSU and Auburn, and then dropping the bad loss to. T&M is, is really just going to hinder this team. And it sucks because they're actually a fun team to watch now. They're playing a really uh, clean brand of basketball. They're an enjoyable watch. And it, it, it sucks for them because it, 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 you know, they really could have been in the, in the conversation for this thing and just, just a little too late. I suppose, I mean, what they're four and eight, you went out, get to 10 and eight. Okay. Well, I'll start listening uh, to an argument, but I mean, they still got to go to Auburn. I mean, hell, a road trip at Missouri as Auburn showed over the weekend. They still have is, to go to Mississippi State, too. I mean, yeah, they're, I mean, it, they're not, not winning happening. out. No, of course not. They can play their way into the NIT. And, yeah. I mean, you you said beating a dead horse. I'll keep beating this dead horse. After the start, going 1-7 and seven in SEC play, um, winning more than you lose down the stretch and making it to the NIT and potentially hosting an NIT game, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, if they can, and I think it's going to take another road win or two to honestly get to that point. I think I, I don't think you know I, I, at this rate their their numbers are I don't think are good enough to the NIT get into the NIT. I think they're Probably close. I, I think if they continue to win and they can steal one, if they can win, you know, I forget who they have left. I'm going to pull up. They're schedule, at Missouri tomorrow night, and then they host Alabama on that Saturday night, and they go to Auburn. Host Vanderbilt, host Missouri, go to Mississippi State. So there's a potential to, to get some wins there. I know Alabama's playing better, but um, not exactly a difficult road game at Missouri. We'll see what Mississippi State is at that point. I mean, it, it's Ole Miss, so they'll, the atmosphere will be better than they've had, but they have really struggled to fill up the hump uh, for Ben Howland's entire tenure and before him as well because it's not like Rick Ray's bad teams were filling up the place. Uh, so – It'll be different for Ole Miss, I'm sure, but not exactly the most difficult place to play right now in general. Uh, so there's a chance for them to get, uh, what do they have, six games left? Four wins, probably. If they win four games down the stretch, that's probably an NIT team. You got to win all three at home and then split one of the, I say split, win one of the three road games you have left at Missouri, Auburn, and State. I think that's the path to the NIT, which honestly, with the way the season started, as you mentioned, would be a pretty decent con uh, consolation. And I think uh, in terms of a long-term view, uh, not I mean, pretty good in terms of just kind of looking at the program and stabilizing it because you got a top 50 kid coming in next year, uh, recruiting going, okay, Jarkel Joyner, who uh, the staff continues to just absolutely rave about in practice getting better like you, you've got even if you lose Tyree possibly lose Shuler depending on what he decides to do you've got some decent pieces coming back and you didn't bottom out so I think that's important for them at this point as well I get it NIT uh, not exactly the uh, most enticing draw just from a fan interest standpoint but I think that's important for them and I, I think I, I think them getting to postseason back to back again 
will will bode well for them in the long term. So they got close, kind of. Uh, like it's not really these these see as bad as they were in the final minute. Like I I don't put that in the same category as the Arkansas, the LSU, and the Auburn, where no. they were just so inept without Tyree on the floor against Auburn, or this their complete inability to close out those other two games. Like this one, they just. Like Kentucky got off it. Uh, was it Richards or I can't? Who was the kid that Kentucky kind of outwilled them on a couple of rebounds? It was Richards. Uh, it was I can't remember if it was him or EJ Montgomery. One of them. It may have been Montgomery because Montgomery did have four offensive boards. Whoever the hell it was got the big basket late. Like Kentucky just kind of made a couple more plays than them. Yes, Ole Miss helped. Well, uh, Montgomery didn't shoot or make a field goal in the game, so it had to have been Richards. Yeah. So. Like the, the point being, Kentucky just kind of made a couple more plays than Ole Miss did. Ole Miss contributed their own demise with the bad free throw shooting. The uh, and then that uh, the Schuler decision, and as you texted me after the game, he was trying to make a smart play and ended up doing the exact opposite. Yeah, but even if that works, I'm not sure it's a smart play in that moment. Like I, like I, I like he was it's trying not. to make a heady basketball play. I get it. But like it, it comes down to relying on the referee's whistle at that point in the game, no matter and how rough. obvious it may look or seen, is just because it wasn't a foul. Like obviously he didn't make contact with him, but even if you jumped into him, you don't get that call a hundred times out of a hundred. And if you're depending on it there, like I'm just not leaving the game in the official's hands. But I, I, I understand. I understand what he was trying to do. I just don't necessarily agree with it, and it wasn't the right play. But you know, so it goes. So I don't know. Kind of the story of this team this year is close but no cigar. But finishing that last thought, I just I don't put that in the same category as them blowing the other three games. I just think that was a tough place to win, and you had to be next to perfect down the stretch, and they just weren't, and it didn't happen. But like to me, those are a lot different than the Arkansas, the LSU, the Auburn, the ones that the the ones they were, they did not close out that really cost them down the stretch, or is going to cost them down the stretch. To me, this one was in a little bit of a different category. So Perfect. so it goes. They got Missouri on Tuesday, I guess. I guess if they uh, if they run the table, we might have a tournament conversation in March. But uh, I I don't see that happening. This was the one that really would have put them back on the map because that would have that could have altered them into the low 60s net wise. Like you're really kind of back in the conversation uh, if you're able to pull that one out. So frustrating year two for Kermit Davis, but uh, them not bottoming out and them continuing to play decent basketball, I think, is a good sign if nothing else. Uh I think that's really about it we had today. Uh, Give me some quick thoughts on uh, Manfred's disaster. Just absolute disaster. You would think that the commissioner, after seeing the Astros, just absolutely failed to do anything at all with their press conference, air quotes, because it wasn't that. Altuve and Bregman just gave BS blanket statements, and the owner of the team, God bless him, uh, had no answer to any like decent media questioning. So you would think the commissioner would step in and try to inspire confidence that he's not letting the uh, uh, the well, I don't want to use this analogy because people take it the wrong way, but letting the inmates run the asylum. And he completely failed to do that yesterday. I mean, just a, a, a complete and total embarrassment. He had his hardest stance in this entire thing is that he will punish teams if they hit the Astros in a game this year harder than usual. So he's taking a harder stance on retaliation than he is to actually cheating his game. Yeah, it's just like I I don't even really know where to begin or where to start 
on this one, but it's kind of like, like one, you knew he was like, uh, you, you'd heard rumblings that he was not the greatest commissioner, but he really has it. I mean, he's bungled some things, but there really hasn't been anything major. Like this is the type the of biggest criticism I've seen. And again, you're more locked in, but the biggest criticism I've seen is the lack of allowing an online presence for major league baseball. Like the limiting of the highlights and all that shit you see on social media when the NBA or NFL is playing, that baseball limits that. That's the biggest criticism I've seen from 30,000 feet. Yeah, I mean, that's one of a couple, but they, they all fall in that neighborhood. Like, they're all minor, but this is the kind of scandal or whatever that kind of defines your career, your tenure as, as commissioner. Like, this is his – I mean, it's not the same level, but this is his steroid thing. Like, this is – like to. Selig's steroid thing to this is kind of what it is for him, and he's bungling it royally. I get I get why they, he didn't want to punish the players because it gets the Players Association involved. They'll file grievances into this big, ugly, drawn-out mess, and at the end of the day, they want their best players on one of the best teams in baseball, maybe the best team in baseball on the field. I get it, but if you're going to do that, you have to have like you have to have some orchestrated like plan to reinforce why you did what you did. Or, you know, I, I mean, it's not like I, I struggle to call it a PR campaign because I don't think it's a PR campaign, but like just some plan to reinforce why you made the decisions you made. And that that seems to just be completely lacking here. Like they, they he seems to be shocked that there's blowback that the players didn't get punished. Like, I just don't understand when you go through this investigation, you don't punish the players, you punish the uh, managers and GMs by suspending them or whatever. And then, of course, they get subsequently fired. So it equivalent to kind of a ban like you're shocked that other players are pissed off because one it changed like it took a world series uh off the off the ring off the fingers of the dodgers you know it affected plenty of other guys like I, I the fact that he's just shocked that all these players are speaking out and they're pissed off about it and it's just created this media shitstorm for the lack of a better word is baffling to me and then him not really wanting to broach the buzzer subject and then him openly admitting on national television, uh, there's no way to know if they use buzzers or not. Like, wait a minute, you conducted this investigation and you still don't know whether they may or may not have used buzzers? Like, come again? What are you? What are we talking about here? So I, I don't, I don't, I, it, any possible, like the ad, like it, it, it's, I saw someone tweet this yesterday and I don't remember who it was, so I'm, I'm not going to give them credit, but they deserve it. The funniest part about this whole thing Anytime someone opens up their mouth or talks with regards to this scandal, it makes everything worse. Like there's not been one single person that is out, like maybe with the with the exception of like Marwin Gonzalez, who is now a Minnesota twin apologizing and like actually showing contri- contrition or him and the other guy, a couple of the other guys. Like outside of that, anytime someone talks about this, it just creates a shitstorm, whether it's Trevor Bauer is outspoken Reds pitcher. Uh, just dropping f bombs left and right, telling them to f off, and like they can come see him and all that. To the uh, Alex Bregman, Jose Altuve showing very little contrition. To Carlos Correa saying that Altuve didn't use a buzzer, and the reason he didn't want his shirt ripped off, even though I think he had an undershirt on, was an unfinished tattoo. Like I, I anytime someone opens up, well, that's up the mouth, third excuse they've given for why he was holding his jersey tight after he hit a home run off of Aroldis Chapman to move on in the playoffs. Like, that's what he's thinking about, a tattoo? Give me a break. But that was after the excuse of, he didn't want his wife to get mad for ripping his jersey. Also a BS excuse. Like, if they would just pick one and stick with it, people would possibly try to believe them. But this is the third different excuse for why he was telling everybody not to touch his jersey. 
Yeah, you think you like the first rule of lying? If you're gonna have, if you're gonna lie, you probably need to st- find one excuse and stick with it, or one story and stick with it. But like, it's kind of just contributes to my lo- lar- larger overall point. It's just like no, no one seems to know how to handle this. I mean, the the, the biggest bungle of them all is probably Jim Crane, the Astros owner, where he just like. At one point, he got caught. I think it was Marley Rivera of ESPN just kind of caught him in the middle of two lies. Where he, he literally just got done saying he don't think it affected the game. And then she was like, well, sign to and gives you a direct advantage. How does that not affect the game? And he goes, I didn't say that. It could have affected the game. It's like, <laughs> wait a minute. What now? So just, yeah, him saying they deserve the World Series and all that. Anytime someone opens their mouth, this gets worse, and it just shows the lack of leadership in baseball. And there's complete inability to handle this. Although, weirdly... I think in the long run, this is going to end up being good for them because this is actually like a true villain story and people are continuing to talk about it. And it's hard to make baseball compelling on a national level in terms of just radio shows and people talking about it. Uh, but they're, they're accomplishing just that right now. And I, I think that like this is going to inadvertently be good for them in the long run because the uh, I don't think the Astros fully realize like what's going to happen to them when they travel to other parts this year. Like it, it's going to be just absolutely brutal. I mean, I think you think of Rafael Palmeiro and the uh, and the um, and his steroid deal where he's going to the plate in opposing stands with earplugs to drown out the booze. Like I think it's going to be that level type stuff, and I don't think they're a hundred percent ready for it. But to my overall point here is you're. Like that's going to make for compelling television, and I think you're going to gain viewers based off that. So this is going to be good for them in the long run, but in terms of damage control and PR and kind of tying up all the loose ends to this thing, uh, they've it's just been a disaster. I finally got you on the train. Now I just got to get Richard on the train of this scandal's actually in a roundabout way good for baseball. Oh, I think it w- will be just for them watching because, like, it is. I mean, it's a real villain story. Like, people are going to hate the Astros. Now, do I think? some random dude that doesn't watch baseball already is going to tune into like a random June Sunday night baseball game just to see someone boo the Astros. No, but people are going to keep up from afar. Like they're going to wonder what's happening and you know, they're going to keep up with the highlights more than they would when the Astros go to Oakland for the first time where Mike fires who blew the whistle on this whole thing, or when they go to, I don't think they play the Dodgers, but when they go to the Yankees or Boston or whatever, like people are just going to be more in tune with the inner workings of baseball. I think more so than they normally would throughout the course of a fairly, but I mean, nationally it is, I like baseball, but boring summer. I think that's where they're going to kind of pick up the most interest. Fair enough. So I don't know. Uh, I I hope Manfred keeps talking because he just looks more and more like a dope. So anyway, uh, did we miss anything? I think that's about all we got for today. That's it, man. I got to run. I got to do radio show stuff. I will remind you one more time. Go see Greg University Avenue. Big weekend for Greg. Uh, baseball's back. He uh, sponsors the pitching changes. There's LB's uh, ads everywhere. He feeds the baseball team. He can feed you while you watch the baseball team. Go see him. University Avenue across from Kroger. Uh, he's got steaks, custom cuts, daily specials. You can go and get a plate lunch and decide what you want to throw on the grill at Swayze later. He's got all kinds of stuff. Greg can help you decide what you want to throw on the grill. He's got those cool game packs for baseball games. He's got it all. Go see him, University Avenue, across from Kroger. Appreciate Greg sponsoring the show. Borky and I will be back at it on Wednesday. Ole Miss plays. That Missouri game's tomorrow night, right? I, that is tomorrow night, so yeah, Wednesday so, will be a reaction pod. We have that. We have And baseball, baseball Tuesday, too. Yeah, they got baseball Tuesday and Wednesday, so five game, uh, five game week for the Rebels this week for the Jose Xavier this weekend. A lot to get to. We'll be back at it on Wednesday. We appreciate you guys listening, and we will see you Wednesday. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.